I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. C'est bon, c'est bon, c'est bon. What does that mean? It's good. Oh. You're hearing like French porn a lot. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't have the energy to go there. I'm feeling a little under the weather. Mm-hmm. So, you know. But even at 50%, I'm sure I'm still as delightful. Uh, <laughs> to deal with in person? Um, uh-huh. Welcome back. Yeah. You were in Minnesota yeah. for the past five days, uh, right? Yeah. Um, how are you feeling? Good. Uh, tired, but good. It was a nice trip. First one... I haven't been there since 2019. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it felt like a different world. Uh, everything's been open there. Um so, yeah, we were just with my sister, we're going to bars and restaurants and like, uh, like nothing happened. Well, this past weekend is when LA reopened. Right. Or California. So I did venture out this weekend. I'm hoping that's not why I feel under the weather. Oh. But <clears throat> I feel more like nasally, not like COVID-like symptoms, just. Oh, good. Yeah. I could just be run down. But I don't know from what. I wasn't going hard. That'll be a chapter in your memoirs. I could just be run down. But yeah, I'm often run down. Okay. So first, you want to talk about the Tribeca Awards? Oh, not, not even loosely. They, the, I've, over the past week, watched about 20 Tribeca films. Uh, and they just announced awards yesterday. Uh, the Novice won... Uh, the top prize, and Isabel Fuhrman won uh, an acting prize as well. I'm about halfway through that, um, and it's interesting. Uh, but but yeah, it's uh, I still have several films to watch, so that's why I haven't created like a top ten or whatever. But uh, to shout out something I really loved uh, out of there was a film called Catch the Fair One, um, written by and starring a WBA champion, uh, Callie Reese who's uh, half-native, half-Cape Verdean, um, which is a char- like the character she plays, uh, who is struggling with drug addiction and is a, a boxer and has is trying to find her sister, who has uh, disappeared and is presumably being sex-trafficked. Very dark, very gritty, uh, directed by Joseph Kubata Vladika uh, and produced by Darren Aronofsky. Hmm. It reminded me very much of... Um, Paul Schrader's Hardcore. Uh, that was his sophomore directorial effort, uh, starring George C. Scott, who very similarly had to go find his daughter, uh, who was sold into sex trafficking um, from the late seventies. I, I suppose also Lynn Ramsey's We Were Never Really, You Were Never Really Here, a little bit too. So new projects you want to talk about? Mm-hmm. Something called Love Child. Yeah, a new Todd Salons film. Uh, you know Todd Salons. You've seen Happiness. We went to school together, I think. No, you didn't. Oh, okay. Todd's happiness? In, happiness. With Dylan Baker as the pedophile dad. And Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Where the dog eats the, the semen. The semen, yeah. Yes, I remember that scene. Yes. Uh, his last one was Wiener Dog, which I think I've been trying to get you to watch for years, because at least two of those segments I think are hilarious. Um, he was my first ever interview. I interviewed him at Toronto... I think 2011 for Dark Horse, which was also Mia Farrow's last film. Um, yeah, he has a new film, a project announced called Love Child, that is going to star Rachel Weisz and Colin Farrell, uh, reuniting them from, they previously starred together in The Lobster from Yorgos Lanthimos. Hmm. Next is a film called Polaris. Yeah, speaking of Lynn Ramsey, uh, she announced her next project uh, since... You Were Never Really Here, will reunite her with Joaquin Phoenix and Rooney Mara. Um, she also dropped in an interview that she is adapting a Margaret Atwood short story, which is exciting. Uh, and then, of course, for a while now, she's been attached to direct an adaptation of the Stephen King novella, uh, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, which I remember reading that when it came out. And it's one of his more simple stories. And I, <laughs> I think Stephen King's latter years, he works better on a uh, more simplistic plane. Um, so yeah, I, I am looking forward to any of all three of those, but yeah, the Joaquin Phoenix Rooney one is significant. And then something called What's Going On? 
Oh, yeah, there's a, a Marvin Gaye biopic finally being made. Oh. Uh, produced by Dr. Dre uh, and directed by Alan Hughes. So Alan Hughes, you might know better as one of the Hughes brothers who uh, started out with Menace to Society and uh, Dead Presidents, I think, you know, where they're pick two big, really, you know, classic 1990s films. Um, they also did From Hell together, the Jack the Ripper movie with Johnny Depp. And I, I want to say their last film co-directing was, it's already been over a decade, was The Book of Eli with Denzel. And since then, both brothers have gone on to do other projects. But this is a major project, obviously, for Alan Hughes, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. Got it. So films you watched that we didn't review on the YouTube channel. That were released this week. Oh, just that? I've been doing just films in general you watched. Oh, okay. Well, you know, to shout out films we didn't find the time to cover or you didn't want to watch. Okay, then that would be um, The Sparks Brothers. Yeah, the Edgar Wright directed documentary. Edgar Wright's, uh, his fan base is a little fanboy for me. Like, I'm probably, presumably one of the few that really loathed Baby Driver. But his early stuff, Shaun of the Dead, uh, Hot Fuzz, I, I think, you know, Simon Pegg. Uh, are fun, but he directed this uh, documentary about the Sparks Brothers, which I believe I brought up briefly last week because I saw it right before we recorded. Um, and my familiarity with Sparks is more in anticipation of their affiliation with Leo's Cracks, but I, I do have seen and do own the 1970s disaster film Roller Coaster, which they performed in, uh, and of course that movie's not great but I, you know I was ignorant of their catalog and uh, I, they have I think like something like 400 recorded songs uh, steadily working since the uh, early 70s and uh, it, it was a very fun documentary again a, veers off into fanboy dum a, a little bit with all the celebrity talking heads that I could have done without but as uh, Themselves, I think the Sparks Brothers are fascinating and um, innovative, interesting individuals. You saw something called Sweat? Yeah, I actually saw this last year. It was one of the Cannes 2020 label films. Um, Magnus Van Horn, Swedish director. It's a Polish film uh, about a fitness instructor who is having trouble finding intimacy, even though she's an online celebrity uh, with what she does. A pretty good character study. I... I I think it is in, I forgot to check, coming out a movie uh, that opened this past week that we did not cover, but I did review for Ion Cinema. And then something called Phenomena? Yeah, you were briefly in the background when I put that on. Um, a 1985 Dario Argento film I've never seen, starring Jennifer Connelly, uh, as a young woman, uh, an American woman, who goes to a Swiss boarding school and she is able to communicate with insects and... <laughs> That helps her solve a string of murders going on. Donald Pleasance is there and a chimpanzee. Um, I know you saw some of that. A chimpanzee? Yeah. I don't recall. Because the next morning, you went to bed and the next morning I was sending you those IMDb trivia facts about how the chimp apparently bit off a chunk of Jennifer Connelly's finger. Oh, I don't uh, remember that. Because we were commenting about, you know, anytime you see a chimp, an actor having to work with a chimp, you're kind of leery. Oh, you know my memory. I, yeah. Okay, so other films you watched, Mary... Oh, but, but my uh, last note on that is it's it's kind of like a less... an inferior version of Suspiria about an American girl traveling to an all-girls school in Europe where terrible things are happening. Okay. Uh, Merrily We Go to Hell. Oh, yeah. Still trying to catch up on a ton of Criterion films I'm supposed to review, and I stayed up late watching that with my sister. It's a 1932 film directed by Dorothy Arzner. Uh, who I believe was the only woman directing studio films uh, in Hollywood, golden era, uh, uh, you know, uh, infamously a, a lesbian. Uh, Joan Crawford claims that Dorothy was in love with her. But it stars Sylvia Sidney and Frederick March uh, about a, a debutante who unwisely falls in love with a, a writer who's a terrible alcoholic. Um, I thought it was funny. Obviously, I've seen lots of Frederick March and Sylvia Sidney films, but... I couldn't get it out of my head that it, it looked, together they looked like if Amanda Seyfried and Rupert Everett were dating on screen, uh, mm. if that does anything for you. It, you know, I think Arzner is a very important, prolific figure, 
Um, it wasn't a film I loved per se, although I do really enjoy Sylvia Sidney. Uh, but the only other Dorothy Eisner film I've seen is The Bride Wore Red with uh, Rancho Tone and Joan Crawford, which is also not a film I loved. It's, it's very much of the 1930s. Okay. Nightmare Alley. Oh, I love Nightmare Alley. So that Criterion just released that. Uh, it's obviously being remade, or has been remade by Guillermo del Toro, which will be released later this year. Um, so yeah, I watched that again yesterday, and it's the third or fourth time I've seen it. You have seen it. I asked you as a birthday present to me to see it at the Egyptian in uh, Hollywood in November of 2019. Yep. Uh, and it, I find it an endlessly fascinating, perverted film noir. Um, and I also had uh, read the book just as we had seen the, film, the screening in 2019. Um, and again, even this restoration, I'm struck by so many shots in it, the storytelling, uh, the, the elliptical fate uh, of everyone involved, three really great uh, female characters, including, I think, Joan Blondell and her most fantastic uh, personification on screen. Um, I found myself watching it this time. Oh, and there's that great opening shot where Tyrone Power is stuck outside of the geek tent, the, the drunk that's chewing off the chicken heads, and all you can hear is the chicken shrieks and... Mm-hmm. If you've seen the film, just know it's one of those films. I think it, it, it is more powerful with each viewing because the morbidity of it. Because as you experience it for the first time, and it its secrets are unveiled, I think you do really need to see it again to realize kind of how devastating it is. Um, like when the character Pete uh, drinks the the wood alcohol, and as he's you think that he's drinking moonshine, and he. Uh, He's starting to have physical reactions to it, and you think it's just he's just becoming intoxicated, and he's actually dying. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. On um, you know, I love Colleen Gray, who uh, is my alma mater. She went to Hamlin University, uh, and we know her as the Leech Woman, uh, Kansas City Confidential, all kinds of stuff. Young, beautiful, not, uh, uh, and the Helen Walker playing the. Uh, you know, for the 1940s, uh, a psychiatrist uh, is, is quite something special in itself, but ends up being the most wicked of them all uh, because he uses the two other women and she uses him. Uh, look, very much looking forward to uh, the remake with Tony Collette as the Blondell character and Kate Blanchett as the psychotherapist and Rooney Mara is uh, Colleen Gray's part. A great supporting cast, David Strathairn, Ron Perlman, um, I found myself watching it again, too, thinking I couldn't stop seeing Kate Winslet playing the Joan Blondell character and Rosamund Pike playing um, Lilith Ritter, the Helen Walker. Anyway, sorry, that, that's a film I could... Uh, we could really record a, a whole episode on that because that it's a fantastic film. And directed by Edmund Goulding, uh, the original, uh, who notably is the only director who uh, has directed a best picture winner that never was nominated for best director and that was Grand Hotel of course um, he also did a good well Dark Victory with Betty Davis which has that notorious uh, Humphrey Bogart doing the bad Irish brogue I believe uh, and White Banners which Faye Maintner won her Oscar for anyhow lastly something called Smell a Sense of Snow Smillas oh Smillas Okay. Did you said smellas? Uh, no, I thought you said smell a sense of snow. Nope. Smillas, sense of snow. Smil- so smilla is a person. Yes, yeah, smilla is a person. All right. Okay. Well, so, let's hear about smilla then. So uh, th- this was. Uh, hmm. I I read the book. So this was about ninety seven. So I was in seventh grade. Um, by Peter Hogue, I believe, uh, Danish author. My, I think my mom had been collecting a bunch of what would come to be known as Nordic Noir, you know, after the uh, advent of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and the popularity of that. But in the late 90s, we were starting to see uh, a lot of films that would later be character the prototypes of what's now called Nordic Noir, including, um, oh God, Insomnia by Eric Skoldebarg with Stellan Skarsgård, which was remade several years later with... Uh, I think Pacino and Robin Williams, and maybe Hilary Swank. I think 
that might have been Christopher Nolan actually um, did the remake. Anyhow, uh, Smell a Sense of Snow. You know, I had, have always had a yen for bizarre titles, and it's got kind of a kooky story. Uh, and I I remember it very vividly. And we rewatched it uh, over this past weekend uh, with my family because I'd kind of been insistent about it because. Uh, I was morbidly curious to see if maybe it's aged better than it has, at least even in a campy way. And I'm sorry to say that it hasn't. Um, it's It's got a lot wrong with it. But still, the, the bones of the story are fascinating. Um, so, Bill August, uh, who's a two-time Palme d'Or winner, directed it. Uh, it stars Julia Ormond uh, as Smilla Jasperson, who is this wayward, traumatized individual who's half supposed to be, half Inuit and half... Uh, of Robert Loja uh, <laughs> uh, and it starts off with the murder it actually starts off with a, a meteor hitting Greenland in the 1850s which is pertinent and then uh, it flashes to Julia Ormond who is you know really gorgeous uh, and she's fascinating to watch on screen but I think completely miscast despite the uh, uh, cultural issues with it um, she just doesn't look like a, Robert Loja, or B, that she could be half uh, Inuit Greenlandic. Anyhow, she has taken a bonding to this young boy who's uh, of a troubled mother, also Greenlandic, uh, who's falls off of the top of a roof uh, and she believes is murdered. And it all ties into this company that's excavating uh, where this meteor hit a hundred years ago, which is they're able to draw a uh, impressive amount of energy from, but it's also awakened this ancient parasitic worm that's killing people. <laughs> hmm. uh, and if that sounds great, I'd definitely give it a watch. It's way too long. Gabriel Byrne plays a neighbor who's an undercover cop who has a stutterer that has an affair with her. He needs to... He, that character could have been cut completely. Um, Richard Harris is uh, the company man that Ormond is uh, trying to get hailed down. Vanessa Redgrave is this um, ultra-Christian woman in, which, in a scene that features the worst line. Because as the title alone... if It's one of those films that you really shouldn't say this title in the movie. Um, or allude to it even, because to me I find it kind of a fascinating title. Uh, but she's confronted Vanessa Redgrave, who tells her secret, and she, she tells Vanessa Redgrave, just as you have a sense of God, I have a sense of snow. Hmm. <laughs> With this very laconic way of speaking that... Uh, there, are, there are several scenes that... It's funny, that were strangely, I think, imprinted in my mind, but... Uh, it was fun to rewatch, but I, I don't think it's good. I, I, I do think that somebody could have done something fascinating with this story, though. Uh, and, and I miss this kind of neo-noir filmmaking, obviously. Moving on, Ned Beatty passed away this past week. Yes, sir. So why don't you speak about Ned? Well, I, you know, when uh, we read that headline, I asked if you knew who he was, and you didn't. He looks familiar. I mean, like, I know his face, but I couldn't... If I had not looked it up, I wouldn't have known which movies he's been in. Well, it struck me that even the way I have to describe him is he's the one who's told to squeal like a pig in uh, John Borman's classic Deliverance. Yeah. Which was his first movie, 1972. But he's, he's appeared in so many excellent films um, besides Deliverance. Uh, that, you know, to me, it's such a disservice that that's such an iconic film, but that's <laughs> would be uh, imprinted upon his legacy. Uh, so I just wanted to shout out five other films uh, worthy uh, of uh, being notable in Ned Beatty's, you know, very impressive filmography. And just in no random order. <clears throat> okay, go ahead. Um, Cookie's Fortune, which is one of my favorite Robert Altman films. Very impressive cast. Great Glenn Close, Julianne Moore, uh, Charles S. Dutton, Patricia Neal. Uh, it's not on Blu-ray. Somebody please put Cookie's Fortune on Blu-ray. Amazing film. Um, Wise Blood, uh, of course, an adaptation of the Flannery O'Connor novel. Read the novel. Excellent. Flan anything by Flannery O'Connor. Uh, but John Huston directed a really good film version with... Uh, oh, God, I'm blinking on his name. Brad Dourif. And... 
oh god, Elaine May's um, Mikey and Nikki with John Cassavetes and oh god, I'm tired. I'm also blinking at his name. Uh, who played Columbo? Uh, in all the Cassavetes films. Uh, I don't know. I can look it up. Uh, Peter Falk? Yeah, Peter Falk. Sorry. God. Uh, Falk and Cassavetes uh, basically trying to escape being killed by the mob. Uh, notorious uh, production by Elaine May. It's available on Criterion. Uh, and also Ted uh, Demi's, or Dem's Life from 1999 with Martin Lawrence and Eddie Murphy. Which, I'm not familiar. Yeah, you are. We watched it over the pandemic. What is it called? Life. Oh, I thought you said something else. Yes. Well, I said the director's name first. Wait, he's in that? Ned Beatty's in that, yeah. Who does he play? An old fat white man. And he's a prisoner or he works in the prison? I believe he's in the prison. Oh, interesting. I do not recall him at all. Well, just how depressing that movie is. It, uh, is, it, 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 it isn't what you think it'd be. Not at all. I mean... It, and also, although it's a period piece, but very much ahead of its time and the parameters that it's dealing with. Also, mm -hmm. good Bokeem Woodbine. Yes. Who, uh, you just saw that meme about him you sent me. Because everybody calls him Evil Dave Chappelle. I sent you a meme that said he's Evil Dave Chappelle? I think that was part of the meme, but it oh. was like people... He's been in how many films and nobody knows his name. Oh, I know his name. I know his name. Um, I think that's, is that it? For your list of movies with him in it? Is it? Yeah. Oh, no. The last, oh. Sydney Lum, Sydney Always Lum one more. Sorry. Go ahead. Well. Go ahead. Sydney Lumet's, uh, Network. One of, like, uh, arguably one of the few perfect films ever made. I agree. Okay, so for today's topic, um, you said we're going to talk about queer canon, which was sparked by an incident you had in Minneapolis over the weekend, mm -hmm. where you were at an establishment wearing a t-shirt that had several names from the film Mommy Dearest, mm -hmm. and a group of people approached you and sort of aggressively asked you what did that mean, you explained it was a reference to this movie, and they said they didn't know. So, well, it wouldn't be on like not knowing. Well, you can sort of explain what you want about that and, and, and what sparked this conversation. Oh, uh, well, because you seem sort of bothered by it when you told me. Because when you told the story, I thought you it, it sounded more like they were just kind of dumb. Like, the way they represented themselves, like, probably <laughs> saying they didn't know, but then you said it felt more aggressive than that. Yeah, well, it felt more aggressive because, um, well, they, they made a, a big to-do about reading out loud, and, and I, right away I could tell, like, oh, they're not probably not going to know it, so I downplayed it. I'm like, oh, it's just a list of names. And, but this girl got close and up in my face and was reading the names out loud, and uh, I told her it's a reference to Mommy Dearest, and she's like, oh, it's a reference. And then um, the other man that had asked me what it was turned to his friend, and he's like, well, my friend doesn't know what that is, and he knows everything. <laughs> Which is a really dumb thing to but say. I, and, I was like, and I was with my sister, and all I could say was, well, it, it, it's out there. And then we you know, kind of turned away. But you know, those are the kind of things, like when I was a young and um, apprehensive individual, that you know, those, are the kind of those are the kind of interactions or attitude towards myself as, that would make me feel like an eternal outsider and there's something wrong with me, blah, 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 blah. Um, which now it's just irritating because I, you know, I didn't try to talk to you, you tried to talk to me. But it got me thinking because we were trying to think about what we wanted to talk about and you know, it's something that happened this week that had me pondering all kinds of things about how we don't really have a queer canon for several reasons and the intersectionality of the LGBTQ community, um, we, we all have different reference points that we've had to kind of scavenge for and cobble together. And it's kind of like how I was always turned away by musical theater because of the, the treatment uh, I received from the, you know, predominantly white gay men in, in that 
uh, scenario, that, that environment. Uh, so to me, it's not surprising that children these days don't know mommy dearest, but how we don't really pass on information and, and how it's like a coded secret society sometimes that also keeps us apart. Yeah, so the conversation we had earlier was to, revolved around a few things. What, I, I think basically what is, what should be the standard for queer references? Like, like what should we all, what do we all need to know? About? If that even makes sense, like right. should there be, um, and what does it say about us when we react to people not knowing these references, which is a very sort of subconscious thing we all do, right? Because in theory, if you ask me, I'm like, no, of course I would never want to make someone feel bad right. about not knowing this thing. But if I met a 25-year-old who didn't know Janet Jackson, I mean, I would lose it. Yeah. So when I think about sort of like a queer knowledge base, to me, what makes sense is to understand the history of queer people in this country. But not just... Which revolves around legislation. Right, right, right. And... So key figures in that, key milestones, you know, relating to policies and activism. So all the big staples, right? Like Stonewall and sort of the initial reaction to HIV and different organizations like ACT UP and, you know, the It Gets Better campaign and what happened to Matthew Shepard and on and on and on. Those are things that I think are necessary mm -hmm. to understand. But... Being a, a part of the culture, I think, like you said, there are so many reference points for so many different members of the community. So then, taking it back to the initial thing, like, do people need to know Mommy Dearest? The, a, a camp classic. And how do we judge people who don't? I would say unfairly. And I'm very sensitive to it because I think, you know, especially growing up and then as a younger adult, like being around predominantly white people and hearing things like, oh, you don't know a Rolling Stones song or you don't know Crosby, Stills and Nash or you don't know these people. And it's like, well, no, I didn't grow up listening to that. But I, but I know about Luther Vandross and Gladys Knight and mm -hmm. Chaka Khan and Aretha Franklin and Patti LaBelle and Teddy Pendergrass and Freddie Jackson. I know these people. So it always made me feel less than like, oh, you see me as half full but it's like, no, I do know references, just not yours. But I thought maybe we should first go through, like, for, like, your age range and where you're from. What do you think? Well, and you're not even a good example because you know so much. But what are some main cinematic and musical references do you think someone of your age, like a gay man, should know? Oh. I think I am a bad gauge for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, okay. So when I think of like gay, like camp and queer films, I think like Mommy Dearest, Tu Wong Fu. Showgirls. Showgirls. Oh, you asked me earlier, what did I watch while you were gone? I did rewatch for the hundredth time the Birdcage remake. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, so the Birdcage, mm -hmm. things like that. But I'm 42. So if you ask a 25 year old... I don't even know what they would say. I'm assuming Mean Girls might make the list, Probably. but maybe not. Um, but why... Okay, then, since you're not the best example, what? why is it important for a 25-year-old to know Mommy Dearest? And is it not as equally important for them to make their own reference that's more modern? I don't know that it is important. It... I don't know that it's even important that I know about it. It felt important. It feels important to me because I was curious about finding community. I, w I was wanted connections. I wanted to find others like me. And you mean within the works of art or attached to the references? So, like, if I knew this thing, there'd be other people who'd know it, and we can connect. Right. Okay. But it, you know, I also saw Mommy Dearest as a kid before I even really understood you know, implicitly what camp was and what, you know, what the reverence, because, you know, everybody of a certain age probably knows Mommy Dearest, but it's how queer people ha hold things in certain reverence that is kind of the secret. Uh, they have a different reaction to it. Like Liza Minnelli has a different 
in Barbara Streisand have a different resonance with gay men of a certain age than they do with like straight their straight counterparts. Um, it's a different kind of fan base, which strangely, you know, something like RuPaul's Drag Race kind of has the opposite effect now. Um, if you understand, if I'm being clear, maybe not. But well, I think what you're saying is that RuPaul's Drag Race's audience is quite young, but the show's host incorporates a lot of older references. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that the difference between the, the fan base has a different meaning for straight versus LGBTQ. Okay. Like, okay, so Liza, there's a kind of a secretive reverence for Liza. Like, back in the day, we had to say, are you a friend of Dorothy? Which is, of course, a reference to Judy Garland. It was coded. Like, there's a code. Like, if you said you liked these people, that was saying you were queer in code, basically. Like, you were, it was implicit that you were probably homosexual if you liked those things. Right. And now, where we've assimilated the culture, like RuPaul's Drag Race is, you know, now a cultural touchstone, and how that that has we've gone away with that. Like saying you watch RuPaul's Drag Race doesn't mean you're gay. Like in fact, it might actually have the opposite effect because now you have queer people saying like, "Oh, I don't watch that because I'm not." Like how many gay men have we met that are adamant that to, they love to point out that they don't watch RuPaul's Drag Race because what does it mean by rejecting that? Sure, sure. But back to your question about is it important for 25-year-olds to know Mommy Dears? No. I think it's what's really important is being curious about others. That well, are, I think that's the thing because if I think about like how did I find these, how did I become familiar with said sort of queer camp classics when I was an 18, 19-year-old was there was a bookstore in Vegas that I would go, a gay bookstore, and they would have sort of, they had a little section of classics. So I would see these movies. They were only for sale, which was expensive. So then I would go and rent them if I could find them. And that's how I became familiar with these films. And a big part of that was I, I thought that I would be able to relate to those movies. So in my mind, I wasn't thinking, oh, there's a community of people who also like these films. If we're talking about movies, these films, and I think that I can connect with those people. It was more that I thought, oh, within the film, I will see a reflection of myself. That's what I assumed. It happens that, you know, there is things that tend to become gay... You know, artists who become gay icons, films that become gay classics, obviously resonate with gay sensibility, gay life. So, yes, I, I, I did find a lot of these classics very appealing because I, I did see something of myself in them. And to me, that's why I think they're important for me. But I think it's important for every individual to find something that speaks to them. I agree. Because I am quite critical, like... If you're a 35-year-old gay man who says you love Taylor Swift, I do pass judgment. And that's not fair, but I'm just being honest. No, but that, so that's the th so me wearing this Joan Crawford Mommy Dear shirt, like that's that's, you know, me secretly saying like, "Oh, if you get this, you might that might be a key to understanding me." Sure. So, and 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 I think going back to Taylor Swift, even though I find it a little odd and you know why I find it odd about Taylor Swift? It's not because I don't think she's talented. She has lovely gowns. But, okay, Rita. Yeah, right. But it's because she's younger than a lot of the gay men who seem to love her. Yeah. And I find that strange. Like, oh, so when you were 30, you thought this 18-year-old girl was like the, like the, the answer to yeah. all the things. So I, I think that's why I have an aversion of Taylor Swift. It's not because she's not talented. I don't even know her music. And the few songs I can think of are actually quite catchy. It's just that I think, like, she's significantly younger than I am. So the icons that I tend, or the people who I tend to refer to as icons, are older than I am. So that's my only aversion to that. But I'm thinking it is important for people to find artists and art they connect with. And we shouldn't make people feel bad that they don't know our references. You know, it's like for me... You know, when I was 20 and I was around 40-year-old gay men, I couldn't understand 
like, what's the big deal with Barbara Streisand? I don't like her. Like, I don't. I don't. Really I prefer like Donna Summer. Yeah, of course. But basically, anyone, any, any of her contemporaries who are black, I preferred over her. And it's not that she's not talented. It's just like she didn't connect with me. Right. And you right. can't force Barbara Streisand down my throat. Like, you can't do it. Um, and actually, my first introduction, I think, to Barbara Streisand was that song Enough is Enough with Donna Summer. Right. And it's because I knew I liked Donna Summer and I found the song with who happened to have Barb. It happened to have Barbara Streisand on it. So I think, like, yeah. Just like how gay men who are 20 years older than I enjoyed certain artists. But getting back to the initial sort of thought, a lot of really great musicians and films I was introduced by to by older gay men, I do really, I did really end up liking. Yeah. Right? So there's a give and take. I think it's the judgment and it goes both ways. Of course. Yeah. Um, well, right, like, okay, so you want to make me feel weird because I got this gay-ass shirt on, but, <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't try to talk to you. But I'm also sensitive, too, because, you know, I don't read a lot. So when I hear people talking about literature, I feel very out of place. There's a way to be inviting that's not pretentious. And, yes, there is, and I'll tell you what that is if you're talking to Joseph P. <laughs> jo- Joseph P. Robinson. Um, <laughs> is... T- Talk to, talk to me uh, like as if you're trying to sell me something, like you're excited about it and, and I want to see it. And most people don't do that. It's more just sort of judgment mm-hmm. and then running off a list of things about this person or this thing. And that's not appealing. That's not going to make me want to go out and get it. Sell it to me. Mm-hmm. Like make me as excited about it as you are. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes I think people shove shit down your throat because they have invested so much time in it that they, it's almost like I invested so much time in this thing, I want, like, you to also, like, see me. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Like, yeah. Even, yeah, literature is something that I feel very sensitive about. And really the only gay books I think I even know about are, like, or that I've read are, like, Tales of the City Armistead, yeah. And, you know, I've read, I think, all of David Sedaris's books. And that that would be about it. <laughs> but that's, a, I think that's, a, like, nobody knows everything. And to me, that's kind of what's exciting about cinema and literature is, you know, almost, yes. almost every day I'm finding out something or discovering something new based on connections, based on who did this person work with, what else did they do. It's really kind of, it, it seems like there's infinite um, possibilities of things to find out and things to read and, and, and be inspired by. And even commencing this, I, I think it was through one of our posts or uh, on YouTube, I think, where somebody had brought up Elin Harris, who was not somebody I was familiar with, but is somebody I am excited to be familiar with. And to me, that is what is exciting about sharing information and vivid visibly and publicly you know kind of if you have a way to project that easily yeah it's it's the curiosity like what is that i was listening to two podcasts one where where um isaac mizrahi was being interviewed which was a good interview yes by a couple of homosexuals who are younger than he is and as people are often prone to doing when speaking to an elder they try to make it seem like, oh, your your wealth of knowledge and your references are so important. So they were kind of like licking his ass. Sure. Saying like, doesn't it make you upset that like these young kids don't know about the art and the history that... Because Isaac Miz, Mizrahi is like an encyclopedia of knowledge um, as it relates to art in all forms. And they were like licking his ass saying like, you know, don't you think young people need to know that? And he's like, no. Like... Young people need to know what's relevant to them now, mm-hmm. right? And and I found the and he said it in such a more eloquent way. But I thought like that resonated me with me so much. I also was listening to an interview with Lady Bunny, and she was talking about the same thing, and she kind of has the opposite opinion that like who do we have now to curate? 
for younger people. And I don't know that we need anyone to curate anything. I think what we need is what you said, excitement. Like, we need people to share what they're excited about because that excitement's infectious. Right. It's like, I think Ava DuVernay said uh, several years ago that diversity sounds like medicine. And that's not the way that you should package it. It, it it's, it's, and that, that's not that I'm saying I'm, I think how we are told we need to be uh, diversify and be diversive, and et cetera, it, it can't be packaged in a way that's forcing people. You have to get them interested, curious, excited. And like any of those things, it, to see he, their, the humanity of others, uh, to, to be interested in others, because that is what shuts people down. Also, understanding your audience like asking me to watch something or asking me if or making me feel crazy that I haven't experienced something that has nothing to do with my background and my experiences as you know them the reaction shouldn't be like shock right and really what i want people to do is come at me with a basic understanding of who i am as a person and what might interest me or what might be relevant to me instead of like losing their shit because I haven't watched some 1950s musical. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not on my radar. Mm-hmm. I don't typically enjoy, you know, storylines, like whatever you're... Refer- you know what I mean? Like, I just... Well, I I'll, think it's like I want people to share their excitement, but also make sure that it's, like... Well, I, I think it's, you know, again, going back to intersectionality and, and thinking of how gay people, LGBTQ people, came up. Like, it, it's so piecemeal because it was underground... Like, it was, uh, if you weren't in a major city, you didn't have access to um, others. You know, like, remember the Mattachine? Um, Society. But the bar in downtown. Oh, LA. yes. Like, the, the several, that is now something else. But the several times going there, and, you know, people have no idea what it is. Like, even, they even had a drink name for the founder of the Mattachine, which is Harry Hay, I believe. Um, you know... And people being kind of not realizing the signal of like, oh, this probably means something, but not bothering to care. And I think it. it I think what's sad is not that a twenty-five-year-old needs to know mommy dears to Joan Crawford anything. It 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 just seems like we don't, as a community, we have never come together to care. Okay, but but see, now we're circling back because I think why should I care? Like, at what point? No, is- no, no. I'm not. It's about caring about. about others in the community. We're all going to get old unless we... Like, we we have no elders to look towards. I don't disagree with you, but I also think that, like, talking about not being curious and not trying to understand is like... But, but I don't know. Like, I feel like we can't eliminate the fact that someone in the present, so a 25-year-old who is standing in Bar Mattachine, oblivious as to what the reference even was, that person has a new set of issues. I agree. Re- related to their life as a queer person. I agree. And the attack on trans people. You know, maybe they're preoccupied with that sort of activism. It's like, to move forward, I kind of like, like need to let go of the past a little bit. Not wholly, but I think there's a lot on everyone's plate. And I think it just... I'm often sort of I'm left say, with a bad what, taste What I'm mouth. trying to say is we as a community haven't done a good job in trying to foster but how do we do that like under what like under what platform under I what I think by offering what you can if for whoever's willing to listen or is seeking it sure that, i mean that yeah that's i mean again it's it goes back to you can't force an agenda or things on people but like it, it, and not shaming people for not knowing because we all don't know we're all we're all a tabula rasa, just collecting information as we go along. But um, I, I think that it is important to know where we came from because there might be some, there also might be something that, that equips us to deal with. Yeah, to learn on. from it. I I agree. I'm just thinking. But again, I wanted to get to you know we 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 had this period and then. Uh, AIDS hit and you know we lost a whole generation of men and artists and and that we have all these missing bridges and and then 
out of what happened to be made, because if cinema is this reflection, and again, a part of our conversation before this was about, you know, it's a very young medium still, so knowing these references maybe not be as impressive as knowing classical music and blah, 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 blah. Um, but also what was allowed to be presented on screen, you know, up until the 60s was all white people. So... That in any prominent sort of way. And so, yes, why I wouldn't expect uh, a person of color to innately want to be interested in going through all these things where they absolutely aren't going to see any version of themselves. Right. And, and uh, so there's that disconnect, too. And I, I think since predominantly those who do have a voice that are older are usually white, cis, gay men who are angry about all these people that really only have one part of their identity that's that overlaps with what they are upset about not knowing something um you know is also an issue yeah going back to hiv and aids we often comment like you know just talking with other people friends about how like generationally everyone's sort of relationship with hiv is different right mm -hmm. because if you're in your if you're 50 plus you were in the thick of it if you're 40 plus, you witness so many people affected by it. If you're 30 plus, it's like you learned how to manage it. Mm -hmm. And then 20 plus, you like HIV is not really something that they're afraid of. Like they haven't seen the negative effects of it. It's very manageable. It, people don't even disclose they have it because it's yeah. not an issue. So I wonder, like the anger many people feel towards the ambivalence younger gay men have towards HIV, is that warranted? Like... I don't think so, but it, again, it's like... Like, why is it... Why, why, why are we all screaming, like, you need to understand how difficult it was, when really it's like, but do they? Like, like that's not an issue that they currently have. HIV is not a death sentence. It's manageable. So, they're not afraid. Why invoke fear and terror and trauma on people who don't have to experience I don't think, that. I don't think that it's invoking fear and trauma to have to know a history. Kind of like like the Holocaust or slavery. Like these, We need to know how people behaved. And, of course. And, and we, we can't erase that and I think that it needs to be, you know, I think we need to keep in mind how the U.S. government responded when, when this happened. And what depresses me about I think that because of the age I am, it just seems so disrespectful and dismissive to all of these dead people that died in vain, you know? And and I feel that way about uh, slaves. I feel that way about uh, the Jews in the Holocaust and uh, South Africa's apartheid. Like, what a shame that they're reduced to just text in a history book that, you know, students aren't excited to learn about. Or, or you know, you gloss over and just, yes, to separate from the past is one thing, but it's, to me, it's just, it is respect. Well, to be clear, if we talk about something like enslaved people, we're talking about the history of black people in the United States, and that history persists. So there right. are still issues. Right. So it's, it's not even a question of is it important, it's relevant. Right. So like, the, the, these are like current issues but, that are related but, to something. But the, the trajectory of it, needs to be pertinent. It, it, it's part of the conversation. When we, when we talk about slavery. Yes. Yes. Like, 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 but when we, we talk about we HIV, can't be, we can't speak in euphemisms. No, but, but, but that's my question. Like, I don't think there's like, it's not debatable when, in, in regards to like the history of black people in this country. But when we talk about HIV and AIDS, it's like, I just don't know that, we need to, I mean, I, this is the question I have. I'm not saying that I agree, but I don't know that younger gay men need to be burdened with I don't think the it's, history of... But to me, that's not a burden. Knowledge is not a burden. No, knowledge is not a burden, but the expectation that like you need to understand how HIV and AIDS were well, treated well, in the, the re 80s... The reality is they'll never really understand. Just like I can't really understand what it's like to be anything but white. But no, but I'm saying knowledge, knowledge can't hurt in most circumstances, but I'm saying that like expecting people to seek out the knowledge 
and 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 occupy space in their mind for something that isn't relevant to them. Well, I think the attitude needs to be not like how I I think generations of people were conditioned to be like, well, when I was your age, I had to do this, so you should have to do it the hard way. I, I don't. It's not about punishing young people or making them feel like they have to have an equivalent equivalent cross to bear. It's just knowing that it happened. It, it's to me, it's not a burden. They they'll never really understand because how could you? And how can I really understand? You know, some things that young people, younger people than I, will be dealing with in a different way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It, but it's but it's wanting to know, like it's of course. But what you're talking about is different because wanting to know and having the curiosity is very different from the expectation that people should know. And I guess my overarching question when it comes to queer canon is. How far do we expect people to reach back? Because the further you reach back, sometimes it prohibits you from moving forward completely. Like, the, the energy I'm spending focusing on... This may be stupid, I'm just talking, but like the energy we're investing... Like, if you want me to go back and watch, you know, a hundred classic films when it's like... But there are also like contemporary queer filmmakers out here doing things. Why can't, like, why can't I invest my you know, 300 hours of film watching on those movies sure, and sure. not movies from the 60s. Like, well, that I guess that's my question and that's what I also think when I think about HIV and AIDS is like, yes, it's important to understand the treatment of gay people in this country when it relates to a number of things, including healthcare. But from gay men if we're talking about gay men, of a certain age right now, that doesn't relate to them necessarily. And they have other issues to deal with. So th this is a big conversation, and we're just talking. I think it's very interesting, but um, we don't have answers. No. Except that we should all... My message would be, if you're excited about something, share it. Yeah. Don't make people feel less than because they don't know. Get them excited about it. Well, yeah. And, and maybe they'll get on board and maybe you'll make a new friend, you know? That's why I do think it's so important to, you know, wear t-shirts with references you like because you might, I mean, that's how you connect with people. Well, so I think it's great. And that's all I have to say. <laughs> I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, but I think after, you know, it was a very minor incident, but uh, just... As I was explaining it to you, trying to think of if I, I don't know that I've ever approached anyone like that, demanding to know what something, because you said you get that all the time. I get that all the time with my tattoos. I get that um, often, not so much uh, in the last like 10 years, but um, like people wanting to know my ethnic background. Mm -hmm. Like they can't put you in a box. I can't figure out where you're from. I need to know. Um, yeah. So... It's interesting, but it's also an opportunity. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. It's also an opportunity to educate people on things that are important to us. But we're getting close to needing to wrap up. Is there anything you want to say before we say goodbye? C'est bon, c'est bon, c'est bon. Oh, not power to the people? And power to the people. Oh, power to the people. All right. Love, peace, and hair grease. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.